not only is UFC Charlotte going down this week, but there is also Aries FC 15, Bellator 296, and KSW 82, all which can be researched on the MMA Fight Archive. If you are looking to do your research and not have to scour the web for all this fight footage from these foreign countries on these Polish fighters or these French fighters, I got you guys covered on the MMA Fight Archive. And since it just dropped last week and we've had a plethora of new signups, the launch promotion is still available. The Pioneer tier where you save 25% on the lifetime of your membership. There's only seven spots available as of this recording. So if you want to take advantage of that and hop on to what will soon be the largest collection of fighter links to past fights check the link in the description below or even the top comment as i do have the link pinned for you guys there seven spots left hop on it quickly because i'm sure they'll be evaporating very very soon appreciate everybody that's already supported and signed up thus far i am working my butt off to keep this thing rolling to keep this thing as being the best on the market i promise you guys i will be working my butt off to continue that high level of service to uh depend on that so check it out link in the description below all right let's get right into the show Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMALOT. And this week, we're going over UFC Charlotte, which goes down this week and headlined by a heavyweight matchup between Jairzinho, Rosenstreich, and super hot prospect Jailton Almeida. Very, very fun fight here, and it's going to be a big test for Almeida. He is a big favorite, obviously, coming into this matchup, but let's see how he does against a top heavyweight and not some old Russian like Shamil Abdurahimov from his last matchup. In the co-main event, we're going to stick with the big boys in the light heavyweight division, though, as we got Anthony Smith taking on Johnny Walker and a battle of top 10 light heavyweights looking to stake a claim in the number one contenders talk for the light heavyweight strap, which is currently held by Jamal Hill. Very intrigued to see how that fight shakes out and who ends up coming out on top. We got a bunch of other great fights sprinkled out throughout the card, not to mention, I believe, three or four fights that were formerly scheduled for earlier this year, which have all been rescheduled to this one. Um, just from the top of my head, Jiyun Kim versus Mandy Baum, uh, Natan Levy versus Pete Rodriguez, and Chase Sherman versus Carl Williams all going down this weekend. Knock on wood that they actually end up happening. Before we get into that, though, let's quickly go over the predictions from last week cage warriors not the greatest we go 0-1 on the lock of the night as my guy i believe um ermel jaffari was controlling the first two rounds ended up running out of gas and got knocked out in the third round and then the dog of the night uh name is escaping me off the top of my head but he got finished pretty quickly i believe it was the guy fighting dario balandi uh, it's unfortunate but cage warriors didn't end up being as great as the former cage warriors events normally are for me so i was i was primed to eventually slip off on cage warriors and that was the one but it doesn't happen often i promise you guys that on the ufc car though not too shabby as the lock of the night comes through with the under one and a half in the braxton smith and parker porter fight i personally thought it was going to be braxton who ended up landing that big knockout early in this fight but it was parker who was able to get him to the ground and eventually find that ground and pound finish regardless we cash in because of the under two and a half hitting and then the dog of the night 
It's been a long time since I felt this confident about an underdog and Bilal Muhammad came through. I heard about all that talk in terms of people saying, oh, he's injured. Take your bet away. You know what I mean? He's going to get stopped. Gilbert Burns is too big of a power puncher. How dare you bet on a guy like Bilal Muhammad? That's why. He puts on a pace that fighters are unable to keep up with. Even if uh, Gilbert Burns didn't have an injured shoulder or whatever it was, it still would have gone down that way, in my opinion. Bilal was just too good. His durability is starting to improve. He's really rolling with shots and staying out of the way of these big shots and not getting knocked out like he did against Jeff Neal back in the day. He is a completely reinvigorated fighter, and I think he showcased that even on short notice. I can't wait to see how he does when he eventually gets that title shot, hopefully later on this year. So dog of the night comes through as well. So in terms of lock of the nights, we're at 41 and 11 for the year for 79% hit rate there. And then in terms of the dog of the night, 25 and 27, just almost under that 50% mark, which again, underdogs means even if we're hitting less than 50%, we're still end up uh, in the profit there considering the plus money that we're getting in return for those guys. Reminder, no regional uh, tier MMA this week on the Patreon, but obviously people will be getting first access to the breakdowns in written form for Bellator 296, which also goes down this week. But don't worry, for you public folks, uh, there will be a Bellator 296 breakdown dropping for you guys aiming for wednesday but it might be thursday but i'm aiming for wednesday to drop it for you guys at that point hoping to get through all 15 or 16 fights that are currently scheduled for that card but the patreon folks get first dibs on those breakdowns so if you want access to that you can hop right on the patreon and check it out or if you want access to the following i believe there's another event next week and it's escaping me right now which card it is for the ufc but i'll be starting on that nice and early probably by thursday or friday so several days before uh the public gets access to it on the mma lockcast i'll be dropping it in written form for the guys on the patreon check the link in the description below five bucks a month not breaking your bank just asking for a little bit of support to continue doing this thing on the full-time basis all right uh, and also a reminder, I already said at the top of the show, um, MMA Fight Archive, seven spots left for the lifetime discount on uh, the Pioneer tier. Uh, it will soon be the largest collection of fight links to past fights for fighters. We're currently just about to reach that 1100 fighter profile mark. It's going to continue to grow. It grows every single day as I continue to add more and more profiles and they stay up there. They don't go away uh, once the fighter fights. We update the fight immediately, update the fighter profile, and keep it available for you guys in case you just want to randomly go out there and check out fight footage on whoever just competed. It stays up there for you guys. And then lastly, uh, shout out to Godzilla Wins, the the website that I write articles for. Uh, Main event breakdowns come uh, come out on Wednesday, and then Thursday we do the... um, three best money line spots as well so make sure you guys check that thing out links are in the description below all right we got i believe 13 fights to get through for this ufc charlotte card let's not waste any more time let's get into the breakdowns kicking things off in the women's bantamweight division we got 11 and 8 jessica rose clark welcoming 5 and 2 tainara lisboa to the ufc Starting off on the Clark side, she's riding a two-fight losing streak where she's been submitted by armbar by both of her opponents, Stephanie Egger and Yulia Stolyarenko, in the first round. That was actually on the back end of a two-fight winning streak where we saw her defeat the likes of Sarah Alpar and Jocelyn Edwards, where she has looked career best, not just in terms of her skill set, but her ability to go out there and impl- or uh, implement 
her grapple heavy approach especially with the physicality and strength that she's been growing over the last several years that's been the main focus for her as she's obviously gotten much thicker and she calls herself um i forgot what her name was uh little thick if i'm not mistaken it might even be a different uh name but that that's what she's a calling herself because she's going out there and hitting the weights and you can definitely see it in her physicality and when she is at her best she's able to take her opponents to the ground and do damage from on top which is how she was able to get her wins over alpar and jocelyn edwards striking still needs a little bit of work but it's good enough to close the gaps in terms of when she looks to grapple her opponents Obviously, another change she made since her UFC debut was moving over to California and teaming up with the CSA gym. She even spent time over there at um, a Team Alpha Mill, and I think she still cross-trains there every now and then. On the flip side, for Tainera Lisboa, she's riding a three-fight winning streak coming into her UFC debut, and this is a spot where she needs to really go out there and prove that she deserves to be in the UFC. I don't really understand this signing from the UFC. But then again, that's what I said about Irene Alexeva the other week. And she went out there and pulled off a big upset over Stephanie Yeager in her debut. Obviously, we don't get as big of odds or a big of underdog odds here on this BOA, considering that she's a two-time Muay Thai world champion, which we've seen throughout her career. She's actually not that bad in the striking realm. We also see her, uh, a familiar name or two familiar names on her record if you skim through her topology page. One being former flyweight champion Valentina Shevchenko, who she competed against back in 2010 under Muay Thai Rose and obviously ended up losing that fight by decision. But even in her first professional MMA fight, she went up against Norma Dumont and came up short due to the lack of grappling in her skill set. Uh, Dumont was able to pull off a three-minute rear naked choke victory over her that night. Lisboa took off three years after that normal Dumont fight, clearly working on her grappling game because that's what she's been using to get her victories since, uh, and then putting together a 5-1 record since returning after her uh, tumultuous uh, professional MMA debut. The other part of her game, or at least resume, that I'm a little bit sketched out about is the fact that the com current combined record of the opponents that she's defeated is currently 2-11. So you know the level of competition she's been facing on the regional scene has been very, very low level, maybe even Tomato Can-esque. And I think she might get a shock coming to the UFC and facing even a mid-tier level fighter like Jessica Rose Clark. Even though Lisboa has been going up against very abysmal competition, she seems to have a good enough striking game to compete with some of these women in the UFC flyweight division, and it just depends on how well her grappling game has started to round out since she had that uh, professional debut against Norma Dumont, which is over seven years ago now. I think she's been working at it effectively enough to be competitive at this level, but I feel like the physicality and already grappling experience of Jessica Rose Clark will end up being too much for Lisboa. I don't have a whole lot of confidence in terms of taking the chalk on uh, Clark in this spot. I think she wins. I think she'll come up with a good enough game plan to shut down that Muay Thai of Lisboa and just put it through the ringer in terms of the grappling realm and clinch game. And I think she'll be able to out uh, muscle her, get her into uncomfortable positions and continue to pound on her and win this fight by decision. Not a whole lot of confidence there though. Moving up to the welterweight division, we got 8-2 Brian Battle going up against 11-4 Gabe Green. 
Starting off on the Brian Battle side of things here, he's coming off of a loss to Renat Fakhradinov last time around, where he got control for 14 minutes out of the 15 minutes that he actually participated against him. He had no answer for the grapple-heavy approach of Fakhradinov, and I really expected him to utilize his cardio a little bit better, or at least his activity and his pace better, so that Fakhradinov would be, uh, you know, not as successful with his grapple-heavy approach later in that matchup. But Brian had no answer for the takedowns that were coming his way. And even though he managed to work back to his feet every now and then, he still struggled in terms of uh, breaking out of that grip of Fakhradinov and looking to do damage of his own and put a pace of his own onto Fakhradinov to have some success. That was a fight that he got completely wiped out. And so I don't really blame him in terms of uh, not being able to muster up the the momentum uh, at any point in that matchup because you just could not get Fakhradinov off of him. So unfortunate matchup for him there, but we'll see if he can turn things around this weekend and showcase what he was really good at when he was getting his wins which consisted of weaponizing his cardio, putting a pace on his opponents, and also going out there and uh, taking fights to the ground and really wearing on his opponents so that he can put his foot on the gas later on in that matchup. On the flip side for Gabe Green, he's a hard-nosed striker that likes to march forward, throw big shots, and really exchange in the fire with his opponents. He's coming off of a loss to Ian Machado Gary, who painted a beautiful picture on his face with his jab and his one-twos down the pipe. Gabe just had no answer for that as he continuously found himself stuck at range and was unable to do much as uh, Ian Machado was just out of uh, you know, landing his strikes, getting in and out of range before Gabe Green could hit him with anything substantial. Gabe Green was on a two-fight winning streak before that where he was able to knock out Johan Lainess and put on a great performance against Phil Rowe in a very back-and-forth matchup but was still the one doing the more significant damage which allowed him to end up getting his hand raised that night. I don't know how high Gabe Green's ceiling is, uh, you know, obviously I do think it's more so mid-tier than anything, but he's always going to be a tough out for most opponents as he's always very durable, very tough to put away, and will more than likely always be staying in your face. I still have some confidence on the Brian Battle side, even after a flat performance last time around, but I think that this is a good spot for him to go out there and get back onto the winning track. I feel like if he can utilize his range and his height advantage that he's going to have in this matchup, pick apart Gabe Green from distance, stay on his bicycle, maybe mix in a couple of takedowns and really wear on Gabe Green, he should be able to pull away late with this matchup. I think if he weaponizes his cardio properly like he has in the past, he should be able to take over and really beat Green to the punch and just get these uh, very crucial grappling positions which will allow him to ride out some control time and maybe even find a submission opportunity i ultimately think he ends up winning by uh, by decision although a good hedge could be the gabe green via knockout especially if brian battle hasn't truly settled in to this welterweight division which was you know in the past seemingly but like a big cut I think he is comfortable at this point in time, but Gabe Green does hit pretty hard. I expect him to land a couple shots throughout this matchup, but I'm expecting Brian Battle to battle on through it and then eventually get that decision victory. Heading over to the women's flyweight division, we got a matchup that was originally scheduled for February, but an illness to one of the fighters has postponed this matchup. But we got 9-6-2 Ji Yoon Kim going up against 7-2 Mandy Baum. Kicking things off on the Ji Yoon Kim side, who's looking for her first victory since the end of 2019. 
She's dropped four straight fights, with a couple of them being somewhat controversial, which is why I believe the UFC is still looking to keep her around. She's a very skilled striker that throws a lot of output and a lot of volume. Unfortunately, she hasn't really shown that stinging power that has uh, allowed the judges to see the fight in her favor. She outstruck Priscilla Cashwara by nearly 70 significant strikes, but still ended up losing that decision because Cashwara was the one that was moving forward, landing big enough strikes that the judges deemed more impactful than the doubled uh, significant strikes that Ji Yoon Kim was landing. Kim is not much of a wrestling threat, but for this training camp, it looks like she's moved her training camp over there to Bangtao Muay Thai, which you would believe is strictly a Muay Thai gym, but it is headed by the former Tiger Muay Thai head coaches, the Hickman brothers. And what those guys are mainly known for is wrestling. Obviously, they've crafted themselves into mixed martial arts coaches at this point in time. However, I think that their wrestling uh, influence will be very solid for any fighter that goes out there and trains with them. But I'm curious to see if they're going to look to add any of those wrinkles to Kim's game to try to make her showcase a little bit more of a dominant performance so she actually ends up getting her hand raised this weekend. On the flip side for Mandy Baum, she's looking to save her UFC career after going 0-2 in her first two UFC fights. She dropped decisions to Ariane Lipsky and Victoria Leonardo and she's hoping that a win this weekend will keep her in the UFC. Her last fight was in July where Leonardo did much better overall work, completely outworked her and was able to get her hand raised. Mandy Baum actually changed her training camp to Extreme Couture before that matchup and I do believe that it's going to do good things for her. I just don't know if her overall skill set is good enough to be in the UFC. She looked great on the regional scene, beating up on, uh, you know, below average level competition, strictly with her aggressive striking approach. But she's found out that there's levels to this shit, especially when she made it to the UFC and taking on the level of opponent that she are she has been and still coming up short. Fifth time's got to be the charm, right, for Ji Yoon Kim, and that's what I'm hoping for this weekend. As she's clearly the superior fighter here, as long as she doesn't get, you know, wrapped up in a crazy back and forth matchup, I expect her slick striking to eventually be the difference maker here, where she's able to touch up Mandy Bone from distance and kind of outstrike her, similar to what Ariane Lipsky was able to do. I'm hoping that the Hickman brothers have been able to instill a little bit of grappling wisdom into Ji Yoon Kim here, where she should be able to get this fight to the ground and have a little bit of success from that top position. I don't think the majority of her game should be based on that wrestling approach, but I think that she can mix that in behind her striking to make it look even more dominant for the judges so they can't deny her this time around as she probably should have gotten her hand race the last two times as well but i'm gonna go ji yoon kim i'll take her to win this fight by i think she has a significant enough striking advantage that she could potentially find a knockout here i think mandy Baum will be a little bit too aggressive and walk herself onto a shot where uh kim should be able to hurt her significantly and possibly even put her out very low confidence there but i think we're going to get juicy enough odds to take end up taking a little bit of a sprinkle but i think that kim is just that much better than Baum. Kim via KO. Another previously scheduled matchup goes down this weekend, knock on wood. We got 8-1 Natan Levy going up against 5-1 Pete Rodriguez. Starting off on the Natan Levy side, he's running a two-fight winning streak after falling short in his UFC debut to Rafa Garcia. That was a very close back and forth fight, but it ended up being Garcia who was able to dig a little bit deeper in the latter half of that matchup to pull away with the victory. 
Natan Levy fights with a very karate heavy style in terms of his uh, his striking stance, which allows him to blitz in and out with some big shots and land some uh, quick strikes on his opponents and then get out before he's able to get hit cleanly in return. But a lot of his success comes from being able to drag his opponents to the ground, utilizing his strength and roughing up his opponents from uh, that top position. In the past, I've kind of questioned his cardio and his ability to keep a 15-minute pace when required, but he's still going out there and getting these dominant positions late in fights so that he can hold position, suck wind, and actually get his cardio back in check to see the fights out to the end of uh, the 15-minute mark. I believe if he works on his cardio a little bit more, something that I'm sure is being worked on since he's joined forces with Extreme Couture, jumping ship from the guys over there at Syndicate MMA, I think that Natan Levy still has some solid potential to tap into at 31 years old. He's a very elusive striker, like I said, but I like his ability to get fights to the ground. His takedowns are very sneaky. His trips are very sneaky, and he has a very uh, very slick uh, submission game as well. But I'd like to see him improve his cardio, and I think that's going to continue to come, especially as he continues to get experience at this uh, UFC level with the guys that he's facing. His opponent this weekend, Pete Rodriguez, is a one-hitter-quitter kind of guy. He goes out there and he puts big power on his opponents and finishes them very quickly. His last victory was over Mike Jackson, which is his lone UFC win to date. But can we really blame him? The guy came in on short notice for his UFC debut against high-level prospect Jack Della Maddalena and obviously lost that fight via knockout. But all of Pete Rodriguez's wins have come in that first round. He's very difficult to deal with when he puts his power on his opponents, but that seems to be the gist of his game. He looks like one of those guys that's going to go out there and just put big power on you early. And if he can't get you out of there, he will more than likely struggle with the cardio aspect of the game as fights start to go deeper. When he joined the UFC, I believe is the time he joined forces with the MMA lab. So I'm curious to see how they're looking to harness that fight ending power that he holds. And if they're able to extract that and 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 put it uh, to use over a 15 minute period rather than just making everything go out the window if he's not able to get that knockout within the first two to three minutes of their fights i felt I, or sorry i should say i feel just as good as i did last time when these guys were originally scheduled to fight each other a couple weeks back as i think that natan levy can really work pete rodriguez to the bone here really suck him of his energy and then eventually finish him in the second or third round of this matchup it was pete rodriguez who was forced to pull out of the fight last time around because of an in, because of an illness and you got to believe only two or three weeks later he might still be feeling the effects of that especially considering he's gonna have to cut weight again and that might hinder his you know immune system and that could impact him in this fight. I think Levy is the best fighter that he's faced outside of Jack Della Maddalena, and I think he's going to continue to come to the realization that the UFC is a completely different level than the guys that he's been facing on the regional scene. Sure, training at the MMA lab is probably great for him, but I still think in live action, going up against the guy of the skill level of Natan Levy, he's going to end up coming up short. So look for the karate stance to keep Levy safe from that uh, blitzing, power-punching style of Pete Rodriguez, and then look for the takedowns here from Levy to control rodriguez on the ground drain of his drain him of his energy reserves and then eventually find a submission i'm going to call probably first or second round but i think levy wins this fight pretty dominantly moving up to the light heavyweight division we got seven and one carlos olberg going up against 19 and three ihor patoria 
starting off on the Alberg side. He's on a three-fight winning streak since falling short in his UFC debut where he got knocked out by Kennedy and Zechigu in a back-and-forth war that went on for just about 10 minutes. Carlos Alberg, like I said, has managed to pull off three straight victories now, two of which have come, or his most two recent Two victories have come over to Fonin Chukwi and Nikolai Negumerianu by first round knockout. He's showcasing that his superior kickboxing and his discipline style now is very effective against guys that just aren't at his level in the striking realm. In the Nzechugu fight, I think he didn't respect Nzechugu enough and ended up getting caught in that fight, uh, especially in a war, you know, something that Nzechugu probably uh, was more privy to to succeed in but uh, Carlos Olberg got dragged into it learned a harsh lesson picked up his first loss as a professional MMA fighter but has been very solid since that matchup and showcased uh, you know the fact that he learned a very valuable lesson in that fight now he's going to continue rising up the ranks in the light heavyweight division, especially being one of the main training partners of Israel Adesanya. We know that he usually has a lot of pressure on him as a lot of people expect him to fight at that same level that Adesanya brings to the table. On the Potieria side, he came up short as well in his UFC debut against Nikolai Negomerianu. As he went out there, tried to finish Negomerianu early, failed in doing so, ended up gassing out and got finished in the second round. He managed to bounce back in January by picking up a big victory over Maurizio Shogun Hua, knocking him out and sending him into retirement. But that was a fight that we all knew that Potieria was more than likely to win considering it was a 2023 version of Shogun Hua who had shown a tremendous amount of damage and wear and tear throughout his career. But Potieria still has a very sketchy record on his way to the UFC. He was 18-2 and two before making his UFC debut, which obviously including his, included his UFC contract clinching performance against Lukas Sodolski on the Contender Series, but the majority of his opponents on the regional scene were either very old fighters or guys with very abysmal records, and he was just going out there and smoking these guys. Now, Potieria has good raw abilities, and I feel like he's a guy that can still go out there and with some more grooming and experience could probably find himself having a decent spot and carve out a spot on the UFC roster for himself. But he needs to go out there and continue fighting these mid to higher level guys so that he can get that grooming and experience required, face the adversity so that he can learn from those things and come back stronger, knowing what adjustments that need to be made so that he can get his hand raised. He has big power in his hand, hands and he's an early finisher and even though he has three victories via decision on his record, a lot of those came against very low level opponents so I still question his level of cardio and if he doesn't go out there and adjust his game, try to portion out his gas tank some more, I think he's going to find himself in the similar situation like he did when he fought Nikolai Negomerianu, running out of gas and likely looking for the exit. I'd say my most confident spot on this fight is the fight doesn't go to decision, but I think it most likely comes from the hands of Carlos Ulberg. I think he is way far superior in the striking realm than Ihor Pretoria, and I'm expecting Pretoria. I'm expecting Pretoria to go out there and try to get this fight to the ground, but I think he's going to struggle in doing so as Carlos Ulberg has got to have been training on his defensive grappling throughout the last couple of years so that he can keep fights in the striking realm where he does his best work. 
his record currently or his statistics currently show a 100% takedown defense rate but I don't know if he's faced anybody who's going to look to actively take him to the ground as much as Ihor Potierio will be looking to do so but I think that Oberg is well-rounded enough that he'll be able to keep this fight upright and then eventually walk Potierio to a big shot and knock him out here so I'll go Carlos, Carlos Alberg by finish, but I think that fight doesn't go to decision. Might end up being roughly around the same price as Alberg, because I expect Alberg to be a pretty chalky favorite in this spot, or even the under two and a half if it takes a little bit of the juice off that big chalky price. But I'm expecting violence here, and I expect it to come from Alberg by knockout. Next up in the bantamweight division, we got 21-5-1 Cody Stamen going up against 28-5 Douglas Silva DeAndrage. Starting off on the Cody Stamen side, who's on a two-fight winning streak now, looking to get some more respect from the UFC brass, especially with getting a win this weekend over Silva DeAndrage. Last time around, the UFC matched him up with the UFC newcomer for some reason, but he went out there and showcased that he's a veteran of the this big promotion and deserved to be fighting guys a little bit higher up the ranks and not somebody that was looking to make their debut in the UFC. Yeah, I get it. Cody Stamen was on a three-fight losing streak before he knocked out Eddie Wineland last year, but he still deserves a little bit more respect than fighting a UFC newcomer. So now he gets veteran Douglas Silva DeAndrage. And this is a tough matchup for him, uh, stylistically speaking, but one that he is still uh, well-equipped to go out there and get his hand raised. He comes from a wrestling background, and he even has a very solid karate-style striking game where he is able to dart in and out of his opponent's range, land a combination or two, and then get out of range so that he can do the same thing over and over again. Or eventually change levels, take this fight to the ground, do some good damage from on top. I'm not the most impressed with his ability to control opponents on the ground, but the fact that he has the cardio and gas tank to go out there and put together a very solid all-around mixed martial arts game makes him a very dangerous threat against most opponents. He's 33 years old now, which is a far cry from, you know, the late early or sorry, mid to late 20s uh, Cody Stamen that we're used to seeing from earlier in his UFC career. But I still think he's capable of high level performances and high level wins at this stage in his career. Skipping on over to his opponent, Douglas Silva DeAndrage, who's coming off of a loss to Saeed Nurmagomedov in a fight that played out a lot closer than I think people expected it to. Douglas had some good... uh, success with his striking even landed a takedown or two that was able to get him some good top time against Nurmagomedov but it was still the Russian fighter who was able to land the more impactful blows have the more significant moments that stayed in the judge's eyes and that's what allowed Nurmagomedov to get his hand raised that night. Douglas Silva Diandraj before that Nurmagomedov fight actually pulled off an upset over Sergei Morozov It was a fight that he came back from adversity after getting hurt very badly in the first round of that matchup. He was able to rally back in the second round and pull off a submission victory of his own. He's a guy that came in with a squeaky clean 22-0 record to the UFC, but has obviously gone 6-5 over his next 11 fights, showcasing what his ceiling actually is, and the fact that he probably fought some very abysmal level of competition on the regional scene. He's 37 years old now, so you got to believe that he's nearing the end of his career, especially being at this lower weight class, but he is a guy that still packs a lot of power, still is a pit bull in terms of the way that he fights, moving forward recklessly, throwing big shots, and looking to knock his opponent out. He's always going to be a tough test for most fighters and a lot of fighters that were making their debuts against him did not come out on the right side of the uh, of the fight. 
and Douglas is still go able to um, is still capable capable to go out there and put a lot of these high level opponents to the test. This is a tough-ish fight for Cody Stamen, but I feel like his speed and his footwork advantage will be able to get him out of that big trouble that Douglas has gotten other opponents into, stay out of that firefighting range, use his speed to get in and out with his strikes, with his combinations, really touch up Douglas, maybe even mix in a couple of takedowns to slow down the Brazilian so that he can pull away later in this matchup and win it via decision as he normally does. I think Cody Stamen feels a little bit disrespected from the fact that the way the, the UFC brass has been lining him up and I think he's going to go out there and try to put on a statement that doesn't mean he's going to go out there and finish a guy like Douglas but I feel like he'll put on a great overall performance to showcase that he can, can still compete at the highest level at 33 years old and I think he puts on a statement here against Douglas Silva DeAndrage give me Cody Stamen Cody Stamen by decision Moving over to the heavyweight division for a fight that was scheduled to take place at UFC 287 at the beginning of April. We now have them facing off this weekend. We got 8-1 Carl Williams going up against 16-11 Chase Sherman. Starting off on the Carl Williams side, he's on a five-fight winning streak right now, which includes his UFC contract winning performance against Jimmy Lawson in a fight that he came in as nearly a 2-1 to one underdog. He was able to utilize a better wrestling game plan than Jimmy Lawson, who was a standout collegiate wrestler. And Carl Williams was able to work him down to the bone and able to outgrind him and win that fight via decision. He did the exact same thing against Lucas Dresky in his UFC debut back in March, where he was able to land takedowns, get key moments up against the gauge, where he was able to land damage and do good work against the Polish fighter. There were some sketchy moments where it looked like he was really running on empty with his gas tank, but was able to muster up enough energy and power to drag Dresky back to the ground, put him into uncomfortable positions, find moments to get some of his energy back, and then start raining down some blows to make it look good for the judges, where he was able to get his hand raised by decision. That's pretty much been the way how he's been able to get his hand raises by taking opponents to the ground and just putting the beating on them or grinding them out over 15 minutes. Unless he feels he has a significant striking advantage over you, like he did against Simon Marini back in July of 2022, where he knocked him out four minutes into their matchup. But Carl Williams, at 33 years old, is a somewhat smaller heavyweight as he used to fight a light heavyweight, but it seems like he's getting comfortable not having to cut weight, so I expect to see him at the heavyweight division until he either takes a losing streak or decides that it's time for him to go back down to light heavyweight. On the flip side, for Chase Sherman, he's on a very tough run over his last five fights where he's only won one victory over Jared Vandera where he knocked him out in the third round of their fight. Last time around, we saw him get outstruck and outworked by Waldo Cortez Acosta. Honestly, a very bad matchup for him, so I don't blame him for losing that fight. But obviously, losing to guys like Parker Porter and Jake Collier doesn't do good for the longevity of Chase Sherman's career. So you got to wonder whether this fight this weekend is a win or go home type of situation for him. At his best, he can go out there and put his striking combinations on you with his big boxing combinations and his heavy leg kick. His, you know, the kryptonite to his game has seemed to be the takedowns, especially when he fought guys like Jake Collier and Alexander Romanov. But I think he's done a decent job on working on those aspects of his game, and hopefully he can showcase those this weekend. 
the obvious pick here is Carl Williams by decision, but I just have this weird gut feeling that the the slowing down and the cardio issues of Carl Williams that has plagued him throughout his career is going to come back and bite him here against Chase Sherman. I get it. Chase hasn't looked greatest or the greatest against guys that looked to consistently take him to the ground. But given the openings that Carl Williams has showcased throughout his career in the striking realm, I feel like after a tough first round or second round, Chase Sherman should be able to muster up some more combinations, some big punches and possibly even find the knockout here against Williams it's not a big level of confidence here that I have on the Chase Sherman side obviously I have some question marks considering he was the one that forced this fight to get pushed back as far as it did because of his uh, medical issue that he had on fight day on uh, at UFC 287 but I think that he can put it together here you know again hopefully survive their early onslaught here from Carl Williams keep working his way back to his feet and then land those big punches where he could potentially knock out Carl Williams the last time I said that, a lot of people were like, when was the last time anybody or Chase Sherman has knocked anybody out? He's not that big of a knockout threat. He did against Jared Vandera when Vandera started to slow down. He could possibly do the same thing here to Carl Williams, who very much slows down and very much leaves a lot of openings for people to take advantage of. Dresky was not able to, but Chase Sherman has enough experience under his belt where he might be able to capitalize on those shortcomings in Carl Williams' cardio. And again, this is a guy that took the plus money on Carl Williams on the Contender Series. This is a guy who took the chalky number on Carl Williams in his UFC debut. I feel like Chase Sherman could find an opening here. That's all. Not a huge lot of confidence, but I'm going to go Chase Sherman by knockout. Headlining the prelims here, we have veterans... 23 and 19 Matt Brown going up against 21 and 11 Court Crusher McGee. Starting off on the Matt Brown side of things, he's coming off of a loss to Brian Barbarena, which took place in his hometown of Columbus, Ohio, back in March of 2022. He's taken off a pretty extensive uh, time since that matchup. I believe he had a fight fallout, if I'm not mistaken, but. He's been still rolling along even after the long layoff, or sorry, the uh, the retirement that he had after he knocked out Diego Sanchez at the ending of 2017. He made a triumphant return about two years later where he knocked out Ben Saunders back at UFC 245, but since then he's gone in abysmal 1-3 and three, where he got knocked out by Miguel Baeza the first time around. In his next fight, he actually got outworked by Carlos Condit. He did pick up a victory over Diego Lima, where he found the knockout in the round in the second round, but then obviously lost a split decision to Brian Barbarena last time around. The difference that we've been seeing about this version of, of Matt Brown, the 42-year-old version of Matt Brown, is that he's more reliant on a grapple-heavy approach. Earlier in his career, when he was really on a solid run and looked like a completely different version than his the first part of his career, he was going out there and just banging with these guys, looking to take them out with his big striking approach, nasty elbows and nasty knees in the clinch. He actually handed Wonderboy Thompson his first ever professional loss back in April of 2012. That was during a six or seven fight winning streak that set him up against Robbie Lawler in the main event of a UFC on Fox card back in July of 2014. That is obviously when he started fighting a higher level of competition and came up short in the majority of those matchups, but it was really his striking style that made him so feared amongst his opponents. But it was this fight against, or, or sorry, it's the last couple of fights where he, we see him go out there and really showcase a grapple-heavy approach, but it just doesn't look like he has the gas tank or the cardio to supply enough oxygen to his lungs to keep that up over 15 minutes because we see him slowing down in the latter half of his matchups, even the ones he ends up winning. 
On the flip side, with Court McGee, he's on a rough run in this stretch of his career as well. But he's two and three over his last five fights. Last time around, we saw him get knocked out clean by Jeremiah Wells in a fight that, you know, a lot of people expected either Wells to get that early finish or if Court McGee was able to get this fight into the latter half or at least in the second or third rounds, he should have been able to take over with his cardio and pace. Unfortunately for Court McGee, the fight only lasted 94 seconds as Jeremiah Wells landed a beautiful left hook to turn out Court McGee's lights. Now roughly a year later, Court McGee is taking on another aging veteran and hopefully he can keep his lights on this time because it looks to be a very favorable matchup considering the cardio advantage he normally has, which is exactly what you'll have this weekend. But Court at his best is able to apply forward pressure, forward movement, keep the pace on his opponent, weaponize his cardio and take over late in matchups. That's how he was able to spring the upset in most of his matchups, like against Ramazan Brahimai, uh, sorry, Ramiz Brahimai, uh, Claudio Silva, Alex Garcia, and even Dominic Steele dating back to 2016. He's 38, so we know he's in the twilight of his career. So I hope the UFC continues to match him up with other aging veterans so that we can showcase what Court McGee looks like on a good day rather than going out there and getting starched by some of these uh, prospects on the come up. I feel like this is a great matchup for Court McGee to get back into the win column. I get it. He got knocked out in his last fight by a vicious knockout puncher in Jeremiah uh, Jeremiah Wells. And obviously, Matt Brown can have some knockout power of his own, even at 42 years old, uh, in the early stages of, of this fight. But I think that Court McGee will do a good job of tying him up, using his you know footwork and bicycle to get out of the way of these big shots of Matt Brown, wear on Matt Brown. And even if Matt Brown wants to go to his wrestling, which he has been over his last couple of fights i think he's going to struggle to establish a dominant position against a guy like court mcgee that will allow court to start weaponizing his cardio really putting the pace and the pressure on matt brown and start pulling away later on in this matchup there's a potential that he could finish this in the latter half of this matchup but given that he you know court mcgee not known to be much of a finisher i think he'll just put the grind on matt brown especially going into the second and third rounds and win this fight by decision kicking things off for the main card we're going to stick in the welterweight division where we got 32, 14, and 1, Tim Dirty Bird means going up against the great white Alex Morono, who comes in with a 22 and 8 record. Starting things off on the Dirty Bird side here, Tim Means is on a two fight losing streak, which is actually on the back end of a three fight winning streak that he had going on. Unfortunately, he landed against Kevin Holland and Max Griffin, who were able to take advantage of the diminishing durability of Tim Means. Now, even though Max Griffin ended up winning that fight by decision, he was able to hurt Tim Means on numerous occasions throughout that fight, which attributed him getting his hand raised. That has been the unfortunate story of Tim Means' career at this point of his uh, fighting career at 39 years old, is that he used to rely on his durability to go out there, eat a shot so that he can hit his opponents two to three times more in return as counters. But Tim Means cannot take those shots anymore. And even in fights that he ends up getting his hand raised, he's getting close to getting finished by some of his opponents because of the emphatic nature that they're able to land with in return. Tim Means is a technical kickboxer with a nasty clinch game where he lands beautiful elbows and beautiful knees up the middle. He also has a very sneaky choke game, especially with that front series uh, of Darces and Anacondas, but also is nasty with taking your back and sinking in that rear naked choke. 
He is a veteran's veteran coming into his 47th professional MMA fight this weekend. Let's see if he can keep his UFC roster spot alive or if he's unfortunately going to have to get a pink slip taking his third loss in a row. On the flip side with Alex Morona, he came up short in a short notice debut or short notice spot against Santiago Ponzinibbio late last year. That was a fight where he outperformed his price tag. I believe he was about a plus 160 underdog that night. But he was beating Santiago Ponzinibbio to the punch every single time and was winning pretty much 90% of that fight until he ended up getting his lights put out near the, the halfway point of the last round of that matchup. Ponzinibbio just could not get a flow going as Morono utilized what he does best. That's forward movement, forward pressure, output, volume, staying in your grill, and not letting you breathe. It's very very weird considering that Alex Morono is a BJJ black belt, but very rarely ever looks to take fights to the mat where you could probably have some good success. This guy just loves exchanging in the fire, loves getting into the pocket and throwing big shots. He's been able to roll with most of the shots from his opponents and uh, eat those shots and keep moving forward and land big shots of his own. But he has been finished in two out of his last three losses. uh, and, And that's a little bit of a question mark. He's still only 32 years old, so I'll give him the benefit of the doubt that it's just him, you know, making these little mistakes. But he's a true analyst of the game. He commentates for Fury FC, which is a high-level regional promotion there out of Texas. But he is one of those guys that just loves to study tape, loves to analyze his opponents, and still go out there and fight like a complete madman. Even though Tim Means is the better technical striker here, I feel as though that he's going to come up short and have his rhythm disrupted as Alex Morono was able to do against Santiago Ponzinibbio. I just don't know if Tim Means can muster up or find that big shot late, which saved Ponzinibbio from taking a loss to Alex Morono, which is why I really like Morono in this spot. I think he'll march forward. I think he'll land big shots. And I think he'll keep that pressure on Tim Means, which could translate into a knockout or even a club and sub opportunity for Alex Morono. So give me the great white here. I think his pressure and pace is going to be too much for the Dirty Bird. Dirty Bird might have some moments here. He might land a nice elbow or a nice knee, but I feel like Morona's pressure will end up catching up to him, which will eventually open up that knockout opportunity and that finishing opportunity for the great white. Give me Alex Morono inside the distance. I'm going to call it via TKO. Moving down to the women's strawweight division, we got 12 and 3 Mackenzie Dern going up against 15 and 12 Angela Hill. Starting off on the Mackenzie side, she's coming off of a main event loss to Yan Xiao Nan back in October, I believe it was, in a fight where she was able to accrue about 10 minutes of control time, but was unable to get that submission victory, which is something that she is normally able to do when she manages to get her opponents to the mat. Yan did a very good job in terms of nullifying the submission opportunities of Mackenzie and then making her pay on the feet whenever they were in that open space. Dern still has a lot of work to do in terms of her striking, but it's clear that she needs to develop it to the point that she can mix in her takedowns very sneakily behind those strikes so that she can, she can get fights down to the ground a little bit easier. She's effectively coming into this matchup with an 11% takedown defense, or sorry, takedown accuracy rate, which is uh, very abysmal. But you can't blame her, or at least, uh, you know, um, give her too much crap, knowing that she has pretty much one way to win most of her fights, and she chooses to seek that out relentlessly and even desperately at certain times. 
She's still only 30 years old, so I think she still has time to grow and make the improvements required to eventually make that run to a title shot, but she still has some work to do to get those takedowns where she can utilize her world-class Brazilian jiu-jitsu. On the flip side for Angela Hill, myself and many people were writing her off after her three-fight losing streak to Tisha Torres, Amanda Lemos, and Verna Jandiroba. I believe that her fight against Lupita Godinez was going to end up being the last one of her career considering that it was taking place in her hometown and she was up against the, you know, up against the clock in terms of fighting women that were on the come up and looked to be very tough prospects for her to deal with. But she put on perfect performances against Godinez and in her next one against Emily Ducati back in December where she was able to outstrike both of her opponents and outstruck Emily Ducati by two and a half times more than what Ducati was able to land on her in return. We know what Angela Hill is good at. That's footwork, movement, using her distance and just battering her opponents from distance with her volume style striking. Obviously, she still needs to work on her ground game a little bit, but she showcased that she can feint knees and tease out or uppercuts up the middle to keep opponents from trying to dive in on her legs and get her to the ground. She's going to need all of that this weekend going up against a Brazilian jiu-jitsu ace like Mackenzie Dern. But given that she has over 27 fights worth of experience, you got to believe that she's more than ready for the challenge that lays ahead this weekend. This is the fight that I feel least confident about because in my opinion, this fight should be a coin flip pre-fight. But if the either fighter can establish their dominance in their realm, they're probably going to look minus 250, minus 300. Either Mackenzie Dern is able to land the takedown and she can wrap up a submission or Angela Hill is going to utilize her footwork, utilize her you know, uppercut, her knee feints to keep Mackenzie Dern from shooting and keep this fight in the upright position where she can just box her up from distance. This could even end up looking like Charles Jordan against Caron Gracie. It's possible. But again, it's hard to trust Angela Hill. Sometimes she looks like a world beater. Sometimes she just, uh, you know, lays a goose egg. And that's absolutely what could happen in this spot. So it's the least confident spot for me on the card, but I'm still going to go with the underdog here. I'm going to slightly believe in Angela Hill, her ability to keep this fight upright, her ability to keep on her bicycle, keep Mackenzie Dern at distance and utilize some good striking and uh, win this fight by decision. Moving back to the welterweight division for the fourth and final time on this card, we got 17-3 Daniel D. Rod Rodriguez going up against 11-0 Ian Machado Gary. Starting off on the D-Rod side here, he's coming off a loss to Neil Magny, which now brings his UFC record to 7-2. He's a very solid striker who likes to march forward, throw boxing combinations, and put that output on his opponents. But it was that awkward, you know, volume style and pace that Neil Magny puts on his opponents that caught up to Rodriguez last time around and forced Rodriguez into submission. Rodriguez had a lot of good moments in that fight where he was able to hurt Neil Magny on numerous occasions. Unfortunately, he just could not keep up with the pace that the gazelle, or I believe... think that or sorry it's the Haitian sensation which is Neo Magny's nickname nowadays uh, he just wasn't able to keep up with his pace at that point but Rod- Rodriguez even at 36 years old is a very tough out as a guy that is just continuously able to march forward put his big combinations on opponents and usually get them to wilt he puts you know very high level uh, or high numbers in terms of output I believe all of his five decision victories uh he's been able to get into triple digits every single time give or sorry he's landed more than 80 significant strikes in all five of his decision victories in the ufc 
or and even uh, in his losses, he's been able to get over 80 significant strikes. Very tough striker to deal with, especially when he gets into his zone. Aside or across from him this weekend is going to be Ian Machado Gary, who's on a obviously 11 to 0 win streak right now, flawless in his professional MMA career, and this is going to be his fourth or fifth UFC fight since making his debut. He's been able to finish two of those, which included his last victory over Kanan Song back in February, I believe it was. It might have actually even been March, but he was able to batter him over 15 minutes or 14 minutes before he was able to get him out of there in the last minute of that fight. It didn't come without facing adversity as Song did drop Gary in the first round in that matchup, but Gary was able to get his wits back about him and then rally back to get that finish in the last round or last minute of the last round of that fight. Facing that adversity this early in his career at 25 years old is going to be very valuable experience for him as he continues to take steps up the ladder and face more difficult opponents each time out. So I don't hate on the fact that he slipped up a little bit in his career, but still managed to bounce back and get that win. It's going to come in handy, especially against a guy like Daniel Rodriguez, who he faces this weekend. Machado Gary is doing very good work down there at Kilcliffe FC. And I know the guys like Henry Hooft and his training partners like Gilbert Burns are getting this guy ready to be the next big thing, especially considering his six foot three frame for this welterweight division and his ability to maintain distance and snipe opponents from that distance as well. I like everything about Machado Gary's game. It's just getting that experience, continuing to groom him against these higher level opponents and seeing how he manages to flourish over the next coming years. I went back and forth with this matchup for a little bit, but then I realized Ian Gary is the better striker here in terms of being able to maintain his distance, utilize his kicks to keep Daniel Rodriguez at distance, and then just pick him apart with that one-two down the pipe. I wouldn't even be surprised if we see Machado Gary look to try to take this fight to the ground so he can stay safe from that big power of Daniel Rodriguez, but I think that Machado Gary at this point in his career, 11 years the younger of uh, Daniel Rodriguez, will, allow, will end up being too much for D-Rod. I see this fight looking similar to the Gabe Green fight, Although Daniel Rodriguez might have a little bit more success than what Gabe was able to muster up, I still think it's going to be Machado Gary that's landing the more consistent shots, landing the more significant shots, and just staying persistent with his output, which will just continue to catch uh, Daniel Rodriguez over and over again. Don't get me wrong, this is the stiffest test of Machado Gary's young career to this point, and I think that uh, Daniel Rodriguez is capable of an upset, so I don't necessarily agree with the wide odds here, but I think the Irishman is going to be able to come through here, put on a good striking display, and win this fight by decision. Next up, we got two top 10 light heavyweights going at it in the co-main event. We got 36-17 and 17 Anthony Smith going up against 20-7 and 7 Johnny Walker. Starting off on the Anthony Smith side, he's coming up uh, or coming off of a loss where he came up short against Magomed Ankalaev by knockout. And I believe that was back at UFC 277. That was a fight in which he was going into after losing his mother and not training out of the normal training camp that he used to, which was Factory X. Obviously, there was a lot of personal things going on with him going into that matchup. But even if there was not anything personal going on, I feel like that was a bad stylistic matchup for him regardless. And I don't think it would have made a difference no matter what kind of headspace he was in. But he is now realigned with his guys over there at Factory X and Mark Montoya. And I look to see a very motivated and, and positive Anthony Smith this weekend, especially the, considering the fact that he's only 34 years old. 
He has a wealth of experience under his belt. I think this is going to be his 54th professional MMA fight. And I believe that he still can showcase what he did during his three-fight winning streak where he was able to finish all three of his opponents, Devin Clark, Jimmy Crute, and Ryan Spann. I, myself, and a lot of people were writing him off during that two-fight losing streak he had to Glover Teixeira and Alexander Rakic in fights where it looked like it really seemed he was looking for the exit after things weren't going his way after the initial start of of those fights. But he's silenced a lot of doubters with that three-fight winning streak that he was on. And I'm looking forward to seeing if he can get back to his original self, especially with him being back at Factory X and if he can do that this weekend against Johnny Walker. Johnny Walker is on a two-fight winning streak and has a ton of momentum going his way, and it seems like the training over there at SBG Ireland is really starting to pay off. But it's usually his big power that ends up getting him his wins, even though he did get a submission over Iwan Kutilaba two fights ago. That was a fight where we know that Kutilaba was looking to get the takedown, but he got a little bit too desperate, ended up giving up the back to Johnny Walker, and Walker was able to take that neck on home with him. But when Walker is at his best, he's able to utilize his flashy striking style and his explosive movements to catch his opponents off guard and knock them clean out. That is the Johnny Walker that we all have come to know and love. But he has his own durability issues, which has made him tentative at times, which is taken away from the danger of his game. But he obviously knew he had a tremendous striking advantage over Paul Craig, which is how he was able to get that finish. But now with him fighting legitimate light heavyweights again, it's going to be interesting to see if he can continue to translate that knockout power to these big wins. I think this is a big prove me spot for Anthony Smith to showcase that he can still go out there and bounce back off of a devastating loss like he took last time around. And I think he comes through with it. I think his durability is good enough to roll with the shots and just take some of the shots that Johnny Walker will land on him and then strike effectively, put the pressure on him, land his own good uh, you know, combinations and even power shots. And I think he can open up a finishing opportunity for himself, whether it's with landing some takedowns here and finding a submission or even just staying persistent with his combinations, staying in the face of Johnny Walker, countering those wild, unorthodox striking uh, movements from Johnny Walker. I think Smith can eventually clip him here and that might open up the knockout or even a club and sub opportunity. I love the fact that Anthony Smith is back at Factory X, and I think that's going to be pivotal in him getting his hand raised this weekend. So Johnny Walker on a little bit of a run, but I think it comes to a halt once again as Anthony Smith get his, gets his hand raised by knockout. And that brings us to our heavyweight main event of the evening, where we have 13-4 and Jarzinho Rosenstrike going up against very hot prospect 18-2 and Jaelton Almeida. Starting off on the Rosenstrike side, he's been on a bit of a roller coaster over his last several fights, but most recently he is coming out of a 23-second knockout victory over Chris Dawkins. It's pretty obvious that if Rosenstrike was able to land on a very, uh, you know, fragile fighter like Dawkins, he'd be able to put his lights out, and it ended up working out for him. But we see when he fights fighters that are a little bit more well-rounded, have a little bit more tools in the toolbox, that they're able to defeat a guy like Rosenstrike, who's pretty one-dimensional if we're being honest. He relies heavily on his knockout power, and his low-output approach usually doesn't put him in the driver's seat of most of his fights. But, as Alistair Overeem found out, we have to respect and mind our P's and Q's every single time we're, or every second we're in the cage with Rosenstrike, as he managed to find that last second knockout over Overeem back in 2019. 
However, we know that's what he needs to lean on. If he can't land that knockout power, more often than not, he's going to go on to lose decisions against most of his opponents, especially at this level. His ground game is obviously a flaw in his uh, style, but that's something that we're hoping that he continues to work on. But given the confidence that he has in his striking game and his power, I feel as though he believes that he might go out and lose fights where he's not the most complete fighter, but will manage to keep his job because he can go out there and knock out the Augusto Sakais and Chris Dawkuses of the world to keep his position in the UFC roster. And the fact that he's had so many main events already is very surprising to me, but I think that just shows that the UFC believes in his ability to create highlight reel knockouts is enough reason to keep him in these main event slots. His opponent this weekend has a ton of heat on him, heat that we haven't seen in a very long time from a prospect in Jaelton Almeida. He originally started off as a light heavyweight, but given the fact that he's been having trouble finding opponents that are willing to fight him, he decided to move up to heavyweight where he doesn't have to worry about sticking to a diet, having to cut weight so that he can fight whenever he wants to. And that's been the case as guys are still looking to turn down fights against him, pull out against him, and that was the case with Shamil Abdurahimov. But it seemed like the UFC was dead set on making that fight happen, which is exactly what happened back in January. And Jelten Almeida was able to dispatch of Abdul Rahimov within two rounds. He's a very dangerous fighter with a lot of big power, a lot of big explosiveness. And especially when he's able to drag fighters to the ground, he's very difficult to deal with from that top position, whether it's his sneaky submission game or his devastating ground and pound that he unleashes from that top position. I had my questions about him earlier on, and we still need to see him face a legitimate heavyweight who's still closer to his prime than Shamil Abdurahimov was, but it feels like he's making this transition to the heavyweight division a little bit easier than most people expected him to. I can't wait to see him go out there and be undeniable to these top heavyweights who are going to now have to fight him because one, he has the recognition, two, he has the ranking, and three, his hype is finally starting to translate to the fans so it's no longer a lose-lose situation for these higher ranked opponents to finally accept fights against him. I'm obviously going to take Jilton Almeida in the spot. Don't get me wrong. I just don't see enough of a threat that Jersey New Rosenstrike provides here. I think he's going to be at a speed disadvantage. I think he's going to be at a grappling disadvantage. I think we see Jilton get this fight to the ground without too much hiccup. I think he sets it up with some big power shots on the feet, which causes Rosenstrike to keep his guard high, and then he'll be able to change levels, drag him to the ground, and absolutely maul him from that top position. Rosenstrike has nothing off of his back, and although he survived against guys like Curtis Blades and even uh, uh, Junior Albini from earlier in his UFC career, I think he's going to struggle against a guy who has the finishing threat that Jelton Almeida presents. This guy doesn't lay and pray. This guy actively works to get dominant positions and then looks to rain down big shots or open up a submission opportunity where he's able to snatch up some necks and cash some checks. Give me Jailton Almeida to pick up the biggest win of his UFC career to date and do it emphatically in the first round under one and a half, not too shabby either. And there you guys have it, breakdowns of all 13 fights for this UFC Charlotte card. Uh, great card now that I just finally got through breaking down all of it for you guys. Again, going down in front of a live crowd, which is obviously an added incentive to these fight night cards. Uh, very excited 
for for these fights obviously uh and then obviously we got bellator the the day before obviously if you want breakdowns for that uh starting to drop them on the patreon check the link in the description below otherwise wednesday or thursday i'll be dropping the mma lawcast for a four card breakdown on that that card is headlined by gay guard musasi who's looking to bounce back since dropping his middleweight title to johnny eblin he's going up against leon edwards brother fabian edwards interesting matchup we'll see if Gegard can bounce back but those breakdowns can initially be found on the patreon link in the description below again thursday i'll be back for the lucky trinity we were so close to freaking hitting it this week it's just, just henry suhudo came up short and then we'll be back for the three best prop bets on friday as well hopefully you guys have a great week and i'll see you guys on the back end of it peace